and take your word that you have given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and bring it to life in our hearing this morning. Lord, peel back the hard layers of our heart, the calluses that we build up on our souls. Lord, and, and touch the soft and tender place within us, Lord, with the truth of your word that it might be deeply implanted, take root and spring up, Lord, to holiness and a love for you that we've not known before. And Lord, we ask that you would do it now in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Chris informed me that my mic was hot when we were singing, so I hope you all enjoyed that. What's that droning, what's that uh, droning Johnny Cash slightly off-key sound that you hear? <laughs> we heard it from our Lord Jesus this morning. The traditions of men. Take that, Ben. Ha ha. Finally, finally, Jesus has just body slammed all those traditions of men that you inflict on us every Sunday in worship with your holy poncho and your kneeling and your bowing and marching a Bible around just like it's important. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, no, that's not really what's going on in this passage, actually. What this passage is really about is about authenticity and holiness. And the context for this passage is overt conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment of first century Judaism. So it's a conflict story between Jesus and the religious establishment of that first century Jewish leadership. So Jesus condemns their religion as being corrupt and essentially, essentially inauthentic. Corrupt and inauthentic. It was a religion that had decayed into legalism and hypocrisy. So we need to define our terms a little bit then. So what is legalism? We might hear that term occasionally. What is it? Well, legalisms are, listen, man-made rules, man-made taboos that we say must be observed in order to earn God's favor. They are man-made rules or man-made taboos that we say must be observed in order to win, to earn the favor and goodwill of God. And that's exactly what we are dealing with here in Mark chapter 7. Here's the background. The condemnation leveled by the scribes and Pharisees against the disciples' behavior is not taken from the Torah, not taken from the Word of God, but listen, all right, is taken from a couple of places. One of the places is called the Mishnah. And another place is called the Gemara. Now, those were two uh, written-down works. They were codified Jewish oral traditions that were sort of like uh, helpful books to explain and apply the Torah for daily living. And ultimately, these were combined, those two books were combined around the 3rd century A.D. into what we now know as being the Talmud. The Talmud. You may have heard of these uh, Jewish works. We get a lot of understanding of first century Judaism when we look back at those works as well. So these rules, so the rules that the disciples are breaking about, you know, you guys don't wash your hands right. Now, I mean, please wash your hands right. But, but, uh, but the, the rules that the disciples are breaking have to do with ceremonial washing. Ceremonial washing that was the remedy to ceremonial defilement. So it was a ceremonial washing. It wasn't a hygiene washing. It was ceremonial washing, and it was to remedy ceremonial defilement. Now, those rules, listen, had, like many times, had really good intentions behind them. 
Particularly, there was the desire to create sort of what I would call a protective zone. A protective zone of regulations that would help observant Jews, faithful Jews, to keep them from breaking the Torah, breaking the commandments. And that actually has a term associated with it. Of course it does. It's called, uh, it's called Qumra. Qumra, not Qumran, but Qumra. And Qumra just simply means this. Fencing the Torah. Putting a fence around the Torah so that you don't ac- accidentally you know, break a rule. So if there's a cliff here, if the, if the Torah is saying don't jump off the cliff, you might build a barrier you know, 30 feet back behind the cliff. It's like when I go hiking at Pilot Mountain. There is a cliff there. Yeah, really, a cliff. People climb on the rock climbers climb on it. And there's a fence right there that says people have died here. It really does say serious death, serious death. It was not just a flippant death. <laughs> serious, serious injury and death have occurred here. And there's a, there's a fence that says don't go beyond this point. You can fall off and die unless you're here to climb on the rocks. So, and you can still fall off and die, so be careful with that. But that's what fencing the Torah was all about. We're going to build a fence to keep you from getting too close to the edge. But what happened was that those man-made regulations, those man-made rules themselves, began to take on the very weight of the Torah, of the Word of God. So to break one of the traditions of the Mishnah took on the force of breaking the very Word of God revealed in Holy Scripture. So do you see what's going on here? So the problem here is not that the religious leaders, uh, excuse me, the problem is that the religious leaders have taken man-made practices and rules. They've taken man-made practices and rules that are ultimately not from the Bible and are treating them as if they had the authority of God's Word, which they did not. So the underlying, uh, underlying problem here is legalism. Legalism, as I said, is an adherence to an outward code of regulations and taboos in order to gain the approval of God. It is the desire to have a right relationship with God based on the observance of rituals or behaviors that are perceived to make me or anyone else right with God. In other words, if I do these good deeds, that will make God like me. Now, the problem with legalism is that, listen, it eliminates, it gets rid of the heart of what God has called His people to do. And that is, He's called us to be in a love relationship with Him. That is the heart of the Christian faith. It is a love relationship with God. And that's the very heart of the Torah, in fact. Uh, We said it this morning, it's in the, the great commandment, but God loves his people and he desires their love in return. And so this morning we heard this at the beginning of the service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love is what God wants from us. But legalism's take faith out of the realm of relationship and place it in the realm of obligations and duties. And this is a small, mean, picayune, piddling religion because once you have fulfilled all the legal requirements, nothing more is asked of you in legalism. I've checked all the boxes. Now I can go do what I want to do. 
But that is not the way love works. You and I were created to live a romance with God. A romance that is typified by excitement and adventure. Um, I got to go on. A, I went on an adventure this week. You wouldn't think that Michigan would be a, an adventurous place, but um, on a Sunday through uh, Wednesday, Ty and I were on the road together, two thousand two hundred and forty-two miles. It was awesome. And uh, and while we were there, uh, they had the worst storms in Michigan that they've ever had. I mean, there was lightning, not just going sideways and not just going up and down, but sideways and up and down. The wind was blowing 70 to 95 miles an hour. Wasn't that right? 70 to 95 miles an hour? 75 to 90 miles an hour. And power is still out for some of those folks. Well, you know what? The Christian life is to be an adventurous life. It's a life that takes risks. That's what love does. Love takes risks. Love is about pleasure. Love is about sacrifice. Those are the characteristics of an authentic relationship with God. There is, now listen, there is never a time when love desires to punch out and go home. Love does not desire to punch out and go home. When I was dating Lisa, they could not get me to leave their house. (laughs) I did not want to punch out and go home. Okay, that box is checked. I'm leaving now. No, no. The very object of its existence is the beloved. Love demands a far greater devotion than duty, and it, embraces, uh, and it embraces what obligation dreads. It demands a far greater devotion than duty, and it embraces what obligation dreads, i.e., foot massages. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind wants to rub your feet. Okay? But if you love somebody, that's not even an obligation. Oh, please let me give you a foot rub. It becomes something beautiful. And more than that, legalism becomes the vehicle, the very vehicle for human rebellion against the clear teaching of the Word of God. And that's what Jesus is condemning here in Mark 7. Let me read it again to you very quickly. And then he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, legalism creates an environment where we put ourselves, our safe little rules, strict though they may be, in the place of God. Brothers and sisters, I've noticed this lately in my life as we've moved into a more secular age. Um, We have the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, those who claim no religious affiliation now. They're not necessarily anti-God or they're not necessarily atheistic. They just have no religious affiliation whatsoever. That's the single fastest growing group of religious affiliation is no affiliation. And one of the things I've noticed about the secular nuns is something that I didn't realize before. But listen, everybody is a fundamentalist about something. There are a lot of food fundamentalists out there. Believe me, I'm a, I'm a food libertine. 
you know this might have a GMO in it. Mmm, delicious GMOs. I want more gluten, please. But everybody has found something. It is the human heart to become fundamentalist about something, but we tend to want it to be our little idol because we can control that. Whatever that fundamentalism is, we can control idolatrous fundamentalism. We may make those rules, they may be strict, and we put them in the place of God. We make a dead little idol small enough so that we will not be taxed, and here it is, by having to give our real selves away in love to a living God. That is, I know this is my heart struggle, is if I can just do my duty, and I love doing my duty, I'm, I'm a very dutiful person, but here's the thing, is that there is a part of me I want to hold back. And by just checking the boxes, I can keep it held back. And God wants every bit of me, not just the outward performance. Legalism has no power to transform the human heart. To generate real holiness, it does not have the ability to do that. Rules cannot change the human heart. Jesus said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man... Where does it come from? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. They come out of the heart of man. And as I say many times, this is why just follow your heart is about the worst advice you can give anybody. The source of real holiness comes from two places, not from rules. First of all, holiness is imputed to us through the merits of Christ's sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. We get our holiness because God sees Christ on me. I have put on Christ as a garment in baptism by faith, put him on. And so the merits of Christ, Christ's holiness, is accounted to me as my holiness. And that's an amazing gift. But secondly, holiness is also not just imputed, it is imparted to us through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God living in me. As we live the long obedience to God, He transforms our inner being. That's what God desires, is to transform our hearts. Our will, our attitudes, our passions and appetites are transformed into those that are manifested in Jesus Christ. We talked about this last Sunday. And as we are inwardly transformed, our lives begin to express outwardly that inward transformation. There's something that always goes along with legalism, though. Hypocrisy is the monster child of legalism. Hypocrisy is the monster child of legalism. Legalism and hypocrisy always go hand in hand. We heard it today in the passage. Jesus says, you hypocrites, talking to those people who were challenging his disciples because of their man-made rules. Hypocrisy is an outward display of religiosity. And my goodness gracious, have not we seen this in the news? And it's not just, in, it's not just them Catholics. It's us Protestants too. Not just, those, uh, not just those liberals, but us evangelicals. And we've seen it. It is the outward display of religiosity that masks the inner reality of rebellion and sin. 
The word is almost, that word hypocrisy, a direct use of the Greek word hypocrites. And it began its usage as a term, a, a hypocrite in, in its first usage, was a play actor in Greek theater, where, where they do what? They wear masks. You've seen those smiley masks and frowny masks. A person who wore a mask and pretended to be someone he was not was literally where the word hypocrite comes from. And often, brothers and sisters, the more rigid the rules, the more outrageous the hypocrisy. Let me give you a couple of real-life examples that are so long ago in my past that probably no one will get, uh, get hints that I'm talking about. Them. So, in a small-town church I served years, decades ago, there was a custom, and tell me if you grew up in a church that did this, a custom of handing out perfect attendance for sun, pen, a, a pen for Sunday school. Did anybody have that growing up? Okay, you got a Sunday school pen, right? And then if you got, once you got your first year of uh, perfect attendance Sunday school pen, uh, then every year after that they gave you a little bar that hooked on under that pen so that you could have a, and you could wear it proudly to Sunday school assembly before Sunday school started, and that pen would have little bars all the way down it like that, and you could kind of rattle when you walked. You had so many Sunday school pens on you. Well, the individual who had run the Sunday school department in that church from time immemorial was the matriarch of her family and literally believed that she and her family, I'm not making this nothing I'm telling you is a preacher story. These really happened. She, she literally believed that she and her family somehow accrued merit before God by getting those Sunday school pins. So she demanded that her 20-something-year-old grandchildren would show up to be counted for Sunday school no matter what. You had to come to assembly and, I think, sit through five minutes of the class or something like that. Many Sundays, these grandkids would stumble into Sunday school, hungover from an, an evening of excesses, um, the Saturday night before. But doggone it, they got their Sunday school pen, so they were right with God. You see, their man-made tradition had supplanted the clear teaching of the Word of God. And another, uh, well, actually it was the same church. <laughs> it's been so long ago, it won't matter now. Uh, there was a young woman, I will change her name. Uh, the names are changed. Her name was Trudy. And Trudy was gloriously converted to Christ after living what could only be classified as a pretty wild life. She was radiant. She was joyful. She was full of the Holy Spirit. She was on fire for the Lord Jesus. She couldn't wait to tell you about Jesus. And she came to me very upset one day because of what had happened after church the previous Sunday. She had been out cutting her grass, riding along on her John Deere lawnmower... And she was singing praises to God as she cut her grass. And about that time, a white Ford Crown Victoria pulled up. And then uh, it pulled up to the curb in her front yard and out stepped Brenda. The, uh, uh, she was a self-styled self pillar of the church. She was a church lady in training. <laughs> Trudy cut off her mower and she greeted Brenda, but Brenda began to berate Trudy. She... Trudy was glad to see her. I get to, we're probably going to talk about church and how great the Lord was. But no, 
Brenda got out and began to berate Trudy, much like the Pharisees berated the disciples of Jesus in Mark 7, we just heard this morning. Because Trudy was dun, 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 cutting her grass on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. But now Trudy had been out there cutting her grass. Actually, it was her John Deere riding lawnmower cutting her grass. <laughs> she was just sitting on it, praising the Lord and worshiping and singing out with all her might. Right up until the time Brenda got out of her car. Now here's the kicker, and people I've told this story to before don't, think, don't, don't believe it, but it's true. Brenda was the manager of the local red and white grocery store. And Brenda had just, she was driving home from work that Sunday afternoon, going to her house when she saw Trudy mowing her yard, and she just had to stop and tell her not to work on Sundays. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We are blind often to our own hypocrisy. The only person who is fooled by hypocrisy is the hypocrite. Now, I've used this example before, but it's worth keeping in mind. Comb-overs are hair hypocrisy. (laughs) Now, I, I am a fine... Uh, a, a fine artist in the art of hair hypocrisy. I, I have got comb over down to a science. And, uh, and I tell you what, it, it, it makes me feel great. But it doesn't fool anybody. <laughs> I feel good about myself. Look at all that hair. It's not shiny up there at all. At least what I can see. I am the only one fooled by my comb over. <laughs> And if we are hypocrites, we are the only ones that are being fooled. Now, it's important to remember because people tend to say something like this oftentimes. Well, you know the church is full of hypocrites. No, the church is full of sinners. See, to be a sinner is not to be a hypocrite. To be a sinner and say that you are not a sinner is to be a hypocrite. Which brings us back to the knee-jerk reaction that many of us have to that phrase, traditions of men. So are there traditions of men involved at Christ Church? How about in our worship? You betcha, there sure are. Just like they are. Now, there are forms here that we use that are not explicitly commanded in the Scriptures. Some of them are modeled on the Scriptures. If you want to look up, if you want to go to the book that informs a lot of the way worship looks at Christ Church, I would go to the book of Revelation. So much of that book, which describes the worship of heaven is reflected in our earthly worship here in Christchurch Sunday to Sunday. But brothers and sisters, not only does Christchurch have traditions, every church has traditions. In churches that don't think they have traditions, somehow everyone still knows exactly how the service will go. How do they know? Well, they know there's going to be a long praise uh, block and where there's going to be a lot of singing. The band's going to start on a high-energy note, and then they're going to move to a sort of a, a slow, more meditative uh, move and, and get more, more laid back, and then probably someone's going to extemporaneously pray from the band at, at the end of that set. And then, and everybody, by the way, knows when to raise their hands. You know? So you do that. You, got, you know the cue. Somehow, how do I know to do that? I watch other people do it. Tradition. They know, one, uh, they know what to do when the pastor gets up to preach. How do they know that stuff? It's tradition. 
And so there's definitely tradition at Christ Church as well. But brothers and sisters, it's not a pursuit of phoniness, and it is not an attempt to unhitch us from the Word of God. Instead, what we do here is a pursuit of authenticity. It is, it is a worship that is not designed the way we worship, the way we try to worship God, is designed to not be about us, but to be God-centered. Not to be about my appetites or my tastes or whatever the current trend is. We're going with the current trends like I often say about the year 500. Those are the trends we're following a lot of the time. But we don't say that you have to use these forms to be a Christian. We don't make that. We don't say you've got to look like us or act like us. We know there are other churches that are equally faithful, maybe even more faithful than we are, that don't do, don't do all these things. However, these forms, and, and also we don't believe that we're impressing God doing any of this stuff. You know, God doesn't you know, look down and say, oh, man, nice chasuble, Ben. <laughs> I mean... I was kind of feeling a little mediocre towards you, but I'm pretty impressed by the, by the holy poncho today. Well done. That never happens. Never happens. However, even though these forms don't earn any merit with God, they do something. They do say, we do say that these forms have been a way that we have done Christianity for a long, long time. And in our experience of about 2,000 years, we see that it helps people become saints and martyrs. These forms assist us in becoming saints and martyrs. Martyr means witness. Now, the forms we use on Sunday are preparation for us. They're formation for us to help us live out the Christian faith authentically. And you can see this same kind of thing in many other places. I don't know if you do martial arts. My martial art is the... Uh, my particular weapon of the martial arts variety is, is the remote for the TV. I'm an expert. But what, you know, in martial arts, if you've done those, you know that there are these things, and some of the martial arts are called katas. And nobody fights like you move in a kata. It's a preparation, it's something you do over and over again. They're for the purpose of training you, for creating muscle memory, so that when you are in a moment of stress, you don't have to think about your moves, they just flow from you. The same is true for exercises and music. That's why somebody made, if you took music, somebody made you learn all those scales and do all those drills because they're not, they're not about performance then, they're about preparation perform, for performance later. And no one, by the way, goes into battle marching in Napoleonic formations. We haven't done that since about 1812. But military units still drill on parade grounds in, same, in the same ways that those militaries drilled 200 years ago, because those drills form discipline and obedience and a sense of cohesion, esprit de corps. Here's why this is important. Listen, okay? In the repeated actions of what we do on Sunday morning, we call it a liturgy. Liturgy just means the work of the people, what the people are doing. Our bodies are being united. Are you listening? They're being, our bodies are being joined to the Christian story, to the gospel, with my body. We are enacting it every Sunday morning when we come to the Lord's Supper celebration. And thus we know God, ourselves, and our connection with the Christian community of believers through our bodies, not just our heads. Someone has written, Ritual is the way we learn to believe with our bodies. 
Ritual is the way we learn to believe with our bodies, just like in martial arts, just like in music, just like in military drills, and so many other examples we name. We do things with our bodies because our bodies are often the way to our heart. So when the cross goes by, I, you don't have to do any of this stuff, by the way. We don't have a book at Christ Church that says, okay, make sure you do this. If you look around and observe it, everybody's probably doing something a little different. They're acts of personal devotion. But you don't have to do any of this. But when the cross goes by, I bow my head when the cross goes by. Why do I do that? For the same reason I put my hand over my heart when we say the Pledge of Allegiance or take my hat off when we sing the National Anthem. Because my body informs my heart in how to believe. What happens in the event of our bodies acting out the story of God's mighty works of creation, redemption, and new creation is that a posture, a predisposition, is formed in us to be in the world in a particular way so that we are enabled and equipped, just like with those martial art katas, so that in a moment of stress, when we come to that moment of spiritual conflict, when we are in the Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 moment, Wrestling against not flesh and blood principalities and powers. We don't have to think it out. We've been prepared for it. Or when we need to share our faith, we don't have to think it out. We say the, we say the gospel every Sunday in the words of the Eucharistic prayer. If you don't know how to share your faith now, y'all, I don't know what else I can do. I mean, it's drilled into me. We know with the body, not just with the mind. Uh, Father Stephen, Stephen Freeman offers a helpful illustration on this point. The knowledge we have of riding a bicycle is not critical knowledge. In other words, it's not up-in-my-head kind of knowledge. You cannot think your way into the knowledge of riding. Uh, Ty was telling me this story about a woman who, uh, she had never ridden a bike. So she went out, she's going to ride her bike with her family. She, she goes out, she comes back kind of bruised and, and, uh, and knocked up a lot. And uh, they asked her what happened. She said, well, I figured I would get the whole balancing thing down before I got the moving thing down. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> she had been st- trying to... To balance that bicycle. If she had pulled that off, she would have been very impressive. (laughs) Playing the piano is a similar experience. Knowledge is not solely in my head. My fingers know how to play the piano. My whole body rides a bicycle. There is a tremendous, brothers and sisters, there's a tremendous longing for authenticity in our world, certainly as the world looks at the church. Christians and thinking non-Christians alike are sick and tired of the narcissism of Western culture, and we really don't want to see it in church. You know, I don't want to be a part of the next Christian trend. I just want to be real. So yes, we have traditions, but the traditions that we have serve the gospel, and if they stop serving the gospel, they will go away. The form we use is not essential. But the content is essential. The apostles' teaching, you heard a lot of Bible this morning. The fellowship, the breaking of the bread, we're going to do that. And the prayers. If we are vigilant against legalism and if we are diligent to pray that the Holy Spirit, as we sang in our opening worship this morning, praying, pleading for the Holy Spirit to come, He will fill this place with His presence. He will fill our worship. And then these forms can direct our worship to be more God-centered and less me-centered, to be a vehicle for ongoing conversion in my life, to form my Christian character, and to prepare us for ministry in the world. 
It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. But God can use the simplest thing we do on Sunday morning, just like hitting our knees in confession to remind us, if we're able to kneel, to remind us that we have sinned before a holy God and we need his forgiveness. These things matter. And thanks be to God, he has given them to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.